0: We are the last country on earth where women couldn't drive. It was a really tough one to break. And just giving women that right really meant something shift in the mindset of the society and the women themselves. They are independent, they can be trusted, they can drive their own lives.
1: Greetings everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now I want you to imagine for a second that your son or daughter or niece or nephew if you don't have children is your legal guardian. You need their written permission to open a bank account, get a job, get married, get divorced, or leave the country. And if something were to happen to them, your ownership would then be passed on to somebody else. As part of this system, you're also not able to leave the house alone, drive, show your face, have your name used in public, and the list goes on. When I first started researching today's episode, I had to take a second with that, and probably more than a second, to be fair... What parts of my life right now would be or would have been completely impossible? How would I navigate the day-to-day practical aspects of just existing? And having had those freedoms throughout my lifetime, it's really hard, if not impossible, to imagine having them taken away, let alone never having them in the first place. My guest today grew up within such a world, born and raised in Saudi Arabia, a country which prior to 2019, women were not permitted legal guardianship over their own lives, including being, until 2018, the last nation on earth to give women the right to drive. Now, there have been a number of reforms in women's rights within Saudi Arabia over the past few years, including women's right to take guardianship over their own lives after the age of 21, and an increase in participation of women in the workforce from 20% to 33% in just the past two years. However, pivotal to those reforms are the women that, in the case of today's guest, quite literally drove that movement. A movement that at first divided and then changed an entire nation. My guest today is Manal al-Sharif. I was first introduced to Manal a few years ago when, in exile from her own country, she moved to Australia. Since then, we stayed in touch, and I have watched in awe as she has travelled the world, speaking on international stages to talk about her activism, and later her incredible book, Daring to Drive. In 2011, Manal co-founded and led the Women to Drive movement in Saudi Arabia. To challenge the ban on women driving, she was arrested and imprisoned for quote-unquote driving while female, and was released on the condition that she never drive again on Saudi lands and also never speak about it. Ignoring these conditions, Manal continued campaigning for women to drive and the I Am My Own Guardian movement with the aim to end male guardianship in her country. In June of 2018, the Saudi government lifted the ban on women driving. Manal then went on to start Faraj, a campaign to help domestic helpers leave jail, and I Am Lama, which resulted in codifying the first anti-domestic violence law in Saudi. As a result of her tireless activism, Manal has been awarded the first Vaclav Haval Prize for Creative Dissent, including being listed as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People and Forbes' Top 50 Women in Tech. Manal is a TED and Harvard speaker. She has also spoken for the United Nations, UNESCO, the Obama Summit, Google, Yahoo, the Oslo Freedom Forum, and many, many others. In this particular conversation, I finally had a chance to ask her some of the questions I'd always wanted to ask her, including the day of her arrest and what went through her mind as she heard those knocks on her door at 2am while her five-year-old son slept upstairs. What she learnt about using her voice so publicly against a structure or system that seemed impenetrable and how she handled the inevitable, often violent, backlash. What it takes to not only start a movement, but to see it through to its conclusion. And I, I think we hear a lot about movements in the media in the early stages, but not so much in the months and years later when those at the front line are still tirelessly fighting because, let's face it, any change worth making takes time. And those who are there still at it years later, often without resources, media or financial support and financial support being pivotal there. How she handles the personal consequences of what happened, including the impact on her career and her ability to see her children and how she prepares every day to help her sons understand the decisions that she made. And why, for a large portion of the planet, we still live in a world driven by rules that were written in our absence, and what she now understands about how you start to question and then rewrite those rules. Please be warned that some parts of this interview contain violent language and swearing, so I'll leave it to you to decide whose ears should be listening. For me, Manal is just one of those individuals that when she walks into a room, the clocks literally stop. Such is the palpable strength of her presence and conviction. However, what I'd love you to reflect on here is not necessarily the size of that strength. It's the smaller decisions, the moment by moment, the the day by day choices to commit and then recommit. One of my favorite quotes from the suffragette movement is this, it is deeds and not words that changes things. So what aspect of the world around you right now may seem broken, no longer useful, or just in need of a rewrite? And what deed, however large, could you undertake? Or whose deeds could you actively support in the long term to help get that change made? And that is a question that is very much on my mind at the moment. But on that note, sit back, cycle on, stride out, drive safe, and enjoy my conversation with the undeniable force that is Manal al Sharif. Welcome to the podcast, Manal Asher. Thank you. So good to have you. So good to have you here. You and I have been, I feel like our paths have crossed so many times over the past few years and we've tried to sit down and have this conversation multiple times, but actually just the timing couldn't be any better now. So it's such a pleasure to have you here. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Such a good coincidence to see you in one of my speeches, actually. I know. Well, I, I ended up being the warmer pack for Manal, which I'm happy to be any day of the week at a at a conference recently. And so, yeah, the, the stars just aligned on this one. Now that I've got you, I'm, I'm going to kick off with a question that I usually kick off with as part of this podcast. And the premise of the question being that, Interesting people tend to find or discover interesting ideas before anybody else. So the question is, what interesting idea have you come across recently that's been having the most influence on you?
0: I think it's, it's not something I'm discovering before everyone else is out, actually out there, but we don't know about it. No one talks about it. The post-trauma growth. We always hear about post-trauma uh, syndrome, but no one talks about the post-trauma growth. I think that's the the most fascinating idea that i came across recently all my life going through trauma and surviving them a lot of people question my sanity and question how did you survive have you been suicidal um how did you do it uh, do you take medication and uh, and i said with myself i'm like am i normal because i just turn out to be okay like i'm a happy person full of life love my kids, never abused because never even thought of that. Finally, I come through uh, across this idea of post-trauma growth, that there are people instead of tr- the traumas that they go through. It doesn't break them. It actually makes them stronger. It may, it builds their resilience. It shifts their life. It, transforms their life, these traumas. And I was really happy to come across this uh, scientific fact, the post-trauma growth. So I've been reading about it and I'm just fascinated. I'm like, yes, (laughs) finally someone tell me you can go through trauma in your life and you can still be okay and function in the society. And be a loving and compassionate person.
1: What are? I mean, it's going to be different for everybody based on the trauma that they've that they've undergone themselves as a human being. But for you, speaking very specifically to you, what were some of the keys to that? To having it be an opportunity for growth or a pivot point for growth, as opposed to a pivot point for disorder or um, disease. I don't know. I I can't say I'm lucky.
0: My sister, she went through the other path, I'd say. We grew up in the same house. Believe me, I don't know. But if you read about the post-trauma growth, it talks about certain, certain things that happen when you go through trauma or when you deal with trauma that helps you, your support system, people around you, what you make out of it, dealing with it, not just sweeping it under the, the carpet, dealing with it, acknowledging that you are going through some, something painful and, and hurtful and talking about it. And I write a lot. So I would journal, I would talk about it. Um, I had really good friends, close friends that contributed to this. I still have a lot of things to, I'd say, go back and deal with, childhood traumas, but I don't think it... It was inhibitor for me to finish my education or to get a job or to to have a family. I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Or being suicidal or being angry or frustrated or going through mental um, health complications. I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful that I didn't go that way. So it could be genetic. It could be some people, um, when they deal with the trauma, it just, they build their resilience. And it could be just the circumstances you go through and how you dealt with it by yourself, because sometimes it doesn't matter how much help you get around you, the same mental health uh, help. Um, If you don't have that hope, if you don't have that inner uh, drive within you to go out of it, I think it's really difficult, becomes really difficult, especially I'll just tell you about being in jail. The whole time I was in jail, I was still wearing my clock, my abaya, which is the black covered woman put on top of their clothes in Saudi Arabia. And I was very very hopeful that tomorrow, today will be my last day. Today will be my last day. So that hope actually really kept me. And I got so busy with um, helping the other women who were less fortunate than me. And that also service helped me um, channel that pain and that, that feeling of injustice helped me. When you use your energy and channel it, to have hope and channel your energy to helping others. I think I think these things really helped me in my life.
1: I'm going to take that I'm going to take that segue and I just I want to I want to jump straight in. I want to start on start on the night in May 2011 at 2 a.m. where you heard a knock at your door. What happened next? What happened after you first heard that knock?
0: It's interesting because there's a long story before that knock. I say that knock that really divided my life before and after. My son was asleep upstairs. I drove earlier with my brother on the streets of Al-Khubar City, where women never drove in public. I was arrested, released, and then they sent unidentified people to my house. I had no clue where they, they were. There were five cars outside my house asking me to come with them. Thankfully my brother was with me in the house. I think that night was one of the most terrifying nights in my life. Mostly not because in Saudi Arabia, when you're taken that way, that means you'll disappear. That means no one will hear about you again. But mostly thinking of my son who was asleep upstairs. He was five years old. Will I ever see him again? Oh, what did I do? Um, who are these people? I think it was really terrifying that night.
1: Let's let's talk about the what happened in the days leading up to that moment. So you had been inspired by the Arab Spring, which started in Tunisia in in 2011, and you had been watching people in Egypt calling for a day of action, um, which then inspired an idea in you. Do you want to pick it up from there? What was the idea that came to you?
0: Yeah, just put, put things in context. Saudi Arabia has no freedom of press, and everything is really controlled by the government. 2011... Social media was used by activists around the Arab world to topple dictators. It was just fascinating to see young people post videos of them asking for a day of action. It was really fascinating for us in Saudi Arabia. A lot of us joined social media. Me, I'm one of them. Just to follow these movements. The movement I started in 2011 was really a personal struggle. came from the U.S. with a driver's license. I had a car. And I was single. I was a divorced mother at that time with my son, and I couldn't drive my car by myself. I needed to hire a chauffeur every time or a private driver. And as a woman, I couldn't have someone living in my house, but I needed a man, like a man, a stranger living in my house. But I needed a man to drive my car. It was the, the 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 problematic contradictions in inside the society. And when I knew one day I was, I had an incident. Where I harassed in the street and I complained to one of my colleagues at work and when he told me that there is no law actually uh, banning women from driving in Saudi Arabia. It was like my my light bulb moment.
1: No law. So up until that point, you had believed that it was illegal to drive in Saudi Arabia as a woman.
0: You know, it's funny because none of us ever questioned it. We just were born and it's the rule ever since the foundation of the country in the 30s. None of us ever questioned. And um, just that revelation that there is no law, actually, so women can go out and drive. So what prevents women from driving? Digging deeper in that, there was a movement in 1990 when around 47 women tried to drive in public, and they were punished badly. And that movement was just bad. No one knew about it. We didn't get that much. It didn't get, uh, we just heard bad things about those women. Westernized, uh, trying to corrupt Muslim women. And we never talked about it. It was a taboo for us for all these years. But the growing frustration and also I lived in the U.S. one year and I I got my driver's license there. I drove there. I got my apartment by myself there while in Saudi Arabia. I couldn't do any of these things. It was kind of freely. Like you're telling us that if women drove uh, or if women got their uh, freedom, we will have a loose society and we'll have crime, and we'll have rape. But I lived in the U.S., and I lived by myself, and it was a very normal life. They told me, when you go to the U.S., you will have culture shock. Actually, I had a reverse culture shock when I went back to Saudi Arabia, because everything was normal for me, living in the U.S. as a woman. Going back to Saudi Arabia was so difficult, because I felt like I needed to compete with men. I needed to work, do the same, have the same responsibilities, being also a mother, taking care of my parents, but at the same time, I couldn't or take very basic decisions in my life as a woman. I had to go through my father as a divorced mother. And years later, when my son turns 18, which is in two years, he would be my guardian. So that was for me the moment of this is wrong.
1: Talk to me talk to me about guardianship, because that feels vital to understand as part of as part of your story and part of understanding this entire situation. What do we need to understand about guardianship as it stands at the moment? Whats your son's name? Ethan. Ethan's my son.
0: Imagine Ethan when he's eighteen, you have to ask his permission to open a bank account or get a job or leave the
1: country. It's difficult to get my head around.
0: Uh-huh. That's male guardianship in Saudi Arabia. Unfortunately, a lot of some parts of the Muslim world still have the male guardianship. A woman can get married or divorce, can get her paper uh, identification paper can get a passport to leave the country. Can even if, if she's in jail, she needs her male guardian to come and bail her out. Not any man, her male guardian. And every woman has one designated male guardian. And it's like ownership paper, move from one man to another. Her, her father, when she gets married, moves to her, fa- her husband. If she gets divorced, goes back to her father. If she is orphaned or like, her father passed away, it moves to her older brothers. Actually, no, not older brother adult brothers. So her brother, even if he's younger than her, he could be her guardian. So a woman is treated as a minor from the time she's born until the time she dies. There's no age where a woman is considered adult before the law in Saudi Arabia. And that was basically the the, the the law or the system that we've been uh, pushing badly against. There are certain parts of the world, Muslim world, it's tradition, adat, customs, but in Saudi Arabia, it's actually codified in the law. So even if you try to change the culture and the customs, you can't change it because it's written in, 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 the, in the books. So that was a difficult thing for us. So uh, thankfully, a lot of these laws been abolished recent in the recent years. Uh, one of them was uh, after the driving was the woman needs a, a male guardian to leave the country. We still... D- we still have the woman getting married. She can't get married without a male guardian. And she also can't leave jail if she finished her sentence without a male guardian giving her permission. We still have that inside it. But a lot of things been removed. Now we can just work on the culture itself because it's now not written in the law.
1: So you talked about living overseas, living in America at that time when there was male guardianship over those areas of your life. So that sounds like quite a unique, it sounds quite a unique situation that your father would agree to you going and working overseas as a, as a woman on her own. Was that unique? Was your father unique in his approach to that?
0: It was unique, but the secret, I was a supporter of my family. I was the first daughter, or we are three kids, I was the first to get a job. And from the first salary I got, I was paying my family's rent, I was giving allowances to them, I was taking care of them financially. And I think being financially independent as a woman in my country is very rare at that time, 2002, but it was very, very empowering. Now I stopped asking for permissions. I would just go with, like, I'm gonna do this. And because I'm the one who is financially supporting the family, my dad wouldn't have um, that much power there because his finance, I'd never used that, of course. I've never used that I'm financially supporting my family to take things that dad didn't want. Thankfully, I would never had to do that. But I think just being responsible for my parents, being very respectful and, and proving myself to mom and dad, that I'm, I'm adult, I'm trustworthy, I can't take decisions on my own. I think that shifted how mom and dad looked at me. Uh, against all the society a woman can not be trusted and a woman can not be independent on her own I think I proved myself to mom and dad um so mom and dad my father especially my father he was very supportive for a lot of things when I wanted to get a job when I wanted to work uh, overseas he was very supportive
1: that's good I just want to go back to Driving for a second, like why is driving such a symbol? What, why was it such a symbol then, and, and why did it continue to be? Nothing
0: really pissed off the Saudis or the the more than a woman behind a driving wheel. We go through a lot of things in our life, but it's behind closed doors. Whether domestic violence, whether women can't get married without the guardian permission or getting a job. But to have something in public, like a woman behind a driving the driving wheel being independent from a man, that was huge for the society to see and comprehend and digest. And I think that what made it very high profile, right, for women in Saudi Arabia. Because you can just take the, the, the you take your car seat and, and get in the car and drive in the street and people will see you. Uh, It was the taboo that made it very difficult, and it was the most public way of exercising exercising your right as a woman. And just think of it: we are the last country on earth where women couldn't drive. It was really tough one to break, and just giving women that right really meant something shift in the mindset of the society and the women themselves. They are independent; they can be trusted. They can't drive their own
1: lives. And some of the, the, the rhetoric at that point was that driving were just so people can fully understand the context of, of this you know, of what you were coming up against at that point. Driving damages your ovaries. You can lose your virginity if you drive, which makes me think I must be doing it wrong, if that's the if that's the case. <laughs> But that—I that, mean—those were very widely held scientific facts that were that were pronounced during that time. No, yeah,
0: well, it wasn't scientific. It was just some. Idiots would go <laughs> but on TV. they were TV. putting it forward as fact. Yeah. So some idiots were going on TV and they would voice these opinions. And it's funny because societies are a highly educated society. Like we have more women with higher degrees than Western Europe uh, because women can't find jobs. So what they do, they go through education all the way to their PhD and it's fully paid plus salaries for them. So we would just listen and just laugh. Um, these, these people coming against us. So now it's not culturally, it's not religious, now it's scientific, it's opinion, it's, it's just so funny. And when I was reading, when um, I started reading about feminist movements in the past, it was so close to what men had to, what women had to go through in the past, whatever they wanted to have any right. The right to vote, when they wanted to ride bikes, they came up with all these stories. I, I was just reading the book, uh, Stop Fixing Women, in the, in the army, when they wanted to let women work in the army in 2012 in Australia, men were against, and they said, what if the women man- man- are on uh, menstruation? Men- menstruating women would be picked up on enemy radar." for example, or attract sharks if they were allowed to become clearance divers. (laughs) And I'm talking about 2012, when women were angry when they wanted to, the Australian Defence Force, ADF, when they opened the full range of combat zone positions to women. And it's just, it's so crazy what people come up with.
1: Well, I mean, I'm thinking a couple of things here. Firstly, I'm thinking I knew my instincts about sharks were correct, Wherever I am in, in Australian waters, they're, they're hunting me down. Um, but the second thing is, you know, just taking this out of out of the gender conversation for a second, you know, any any structure, any base that has power is very reluctant, usually very reluctant to share or give up that power. And there's an interesting point here where if you're the person who's trying to question that structure, or you're the person who is kind of knocking on the door of that structure and going, hang on, this just seems broken to me. You have to assume that you are going to get what sounds like either ridiculous or potentially justifiable reasons why I'm really sorry, you know, we can't let you in. I'm really sorry. We would, but, you know, here are all the reasons. What did you, and we're going to go through the the full gamut of your journey, but what did you learn about questioning? About how to question in a way that gets past all the reasons, all the subterfuge, and actually gets something changed?
0: I learned the hard way never to engage with those idiots. When they have these stupid reasons and excuses, I'd call it, for me not to be part of something, uh, they don't answer directly my question. They go and give me excuses, especially those like mind-blowing, outrageous excuses. I ignore it. I don't even engage there. I just focus on what I want. This is what I want, and I don't even need to explain what I want it, what I why I want it. Um, I learned in the hard way is just to continue doing. We want. We said women will drive, and this is the right we want. We don't have to give you. All the reasons why women need to drive. So it's, it's a basic human right, mobility, that's guaranteed by all international human rights laws. And I'm just asking for what's my right?
1: What? I love about that is that you don't get distracted. At
0: all, never.
1: You don't get distracted by suddenly you're not debating whether to be able to drive is a basic human right. Suddenly you're debating whether it damages women's ovaries, which is a complete distraction as a debate.
0: When you start a new movement or when you speaking for some speaking for something that will upset people, imagine yourself walking in a tunnel if you there are a lot of people will try to distract you, will yell at you, will shout at you, will create stories about you, will be rumors, you will become a public target. Just focus to finish the journey, focus on your goal. Those people will just drain you if you stop every time and try to answer their questions or try to engage in their debate. I never uh um, attention to them. And and by the way, they get tired. They completely get tired and they stop. And when you engage with them, you actually give their voice. You give them the the power and also you give them the the publicity because they wanted their opinions to be out there and people know about it. But if you just ignore them, it dies with them. And just focus. Um, I think that was the most important thing I learned is know that you're right. Focus on that. And just continue continue your path and ignore those naysayers, ignore those people who are the, the people who um, harass you or, or tell you you're crazy or come up with crazy excuses. Why not? That's, that's the hard way. That's what I learned in the hard way.
1: Let's flip back into those, those periods of days here. And we'll keep kind of coming back in and out and as we go down some different rabbit holes. So you, um, so the day of action was coming up on June 17th and you, you started, so you decided to start a Facebook event to ask women to drive on the day of action. What happened? What happened after that? You put it out into the world. Did you think it would get any traction? Did you, or were you, was it just the doing of it itself that felt like the action?
0: Oh, the story goes, I was so pissed off and angry. I wanted to do something. I was going to do exactly what Egyptians did, call a day of action. So they did January 25th, and it was a big success, and they toppled Hosni Mubarak. And I was talking to my friends um, in the photography club that I started, and one of my friends sent me her nephew. Uh, She posted an event on Facebook to drive in May. And I picked it up and I'm like, can I talk to your nephew? So I talked to her and I said, I was going to do this, but I'm, I'm putting it in June because I want to prepare. It. Do you want to join the forces? So me and her, we changed the date to June 17. Um, and it was a, it was exam time. We didn't even pay attention. And we had around 120,000 women joining the event online. Facebook is not big in Saudi Arabia. So most of the people were joining some from Saudi Arabia, but mostly from the Arab world. So that's why I had to go and start one of my uh, photography group friends told me Twitter is huge in Saudi Arabia. It's bigger than Facebook. Facebook is for for Egypt and that's when I learned how to use Twitter. So I started Twitter and oh my God, we had around 10,000 followers and you're talking about 2011. People didn't know that much about Twitter at that time. We had around 10,000 followers in the first week for us on on the movement, the Women to Drive movement. So it was really huge, uh, the the people following. But again, we had all these uh, whoever against the movement. They started creating all these threats, and women will be raped. uh, They will be sent to jail. uh, You will unleash the min wolves, they call them. So that's when I had to go and drive and post a video on YouTube. And YouTube was the second or the number one social media in Saudi Arabia. People in Saudi Arabia at that time, it was 90 million video views per, cabi- uh, uh, per day in Saudi Arabia, like per capita with the highest nation in the world at that time in video views of YouTube. So that was the right place, Twitter and YouTube, to post that video. And it did create that huge, the government were, trying to uh, just turn a blind eye on the movement, not talk about it in the media that they control. We made huge, huge, 700,000 views of the video of me driving in the city uh, with Wajih al-Huadir. And she took it on my iPhone, that video. So the outreach was unbelievable, like unprecedented. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the word right, in, 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 in Saudi Arabia. So it was huge using social media at that time.
1: You know, you you had the day of action coming up. Women were understandably terrified of the possible consequences of joining that day. So you hit the ground. You got in the car with a friend and said, look, we are going to, we're going to drive around the city, video it, put it up to show you that it's safe to do so. And then, you know, the next day in the office, you said, you know, someone came running over and suddenly announced that this is now the most viewed video in Saudi Arabia. Were you, how did you feel? I, I can't even think of an emotion of how I would feel in that moment.
0: Oh, wow, well, I did. Uh, because there were two videos, one explaining the movement and one, and you know, Saudi Arabia in 2011, coming out with your rename, name, uncovered face, unheard of. It was just like a huge thing. That was by itself that was rebellious to go out with my, and my, my family, Al-Sharif family is a big family in Saudi Arabia. So Saudis usually do not use the last name because they're too afraid of the tribe uh, you know, the tribe owner, um, in, in in Saudi, but I went out with my face, with my last name, my full name. And I thought that's the video that was most viewed, but actually it was me driving. That was most viewed. I was really shocked. It was trending worldwide. And what was shocking about it is that we went, we drove, went back, nothing happened. And that what made people just so in disbelief and also so angry. Oh my God hundreds of comments that I had to go and just I had to stop the commenting on the video because it was so abusive. I was having phone calls in my my office, how they got my number because my 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 name they got they went through the address book and they got my phone number and they would call me. They would they would threaten me. It, I didn't know it will create so much anger in Saudi Arabia, but at the same time it created so much hope. And I I chose to um, look at the hope that it created that we went out, we drove, nothing happened to us, went back home safe and sound.
1: Did you did you have an inkling in that moment that the moment when you realised it had gone, you know, viral, that this would be something would be as significant as it ended up being both for you personally and for women's rights in Saudi Arabia?
0: Uh, all I was thinking of that June seventeen women will go out and drive. And I was so excited that I was just planning to take my son on a road trip because this is it. 2011 is the year where you see all these dictators being toppled. Nothing is impossible for us. And it was it was due. Like it was the time. Saudi Arabia were dealing with a lot of uprise around them, political prize around them. I think the last thing they wanted to, to deal with is political uh, uh, upheaval in the country. And we seized the moment as women. We most marginalized and the most uh, oppressed in the country are the, the uh, are women. So that was the right moment for us. A lot of people said if you waited, if you've waited after the Arab Spring, I'm actually like no, that was the right moment, the right time and the right moment and the right tools. If I come today 10 years later and try to do it the same way, it wouldn't work because you didn't have the world paying attention to what's happening in the Middle East. And all of these social media that we use at the time completely has different uh, business models today.
1: So let's get back to that day. Let's loop right back to the moment—the the 2 a.m. moment. The YouTube video has has now gone live. You 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 were arrested, jailed for nine days. And on that piece of paper you were given, what did it what did it say that the charges were? Driving while female, one line. Driving while female. I mean, it's hard to argue with that is you know exactly what you did, but it's it's even inconceivable even now that that would be an arrestable offense. Were you confident that you would be released? Did you feel? how did you feel in that moment, not knowing you know what was going to come next?
0: With uncertainty is the only thing that we could have is hope. And I'm very thankful I didn't lose hope. And I knew that if my father went to the king, and ask for pardon, I would be released. I was really thankful that my family were very helpful and very supportive. They were against my, the movement, but they were supportive of me as their daughter. So they did go. My father went to the king and asked for a pardon. And that's how I was released. Thankfully, I was out.
1: Is that a normal thing to be able to approach the king? Was that um, by view of your family connections? Is that something that anyone can do?
0: No, Saudi, the Saudi king is usually approachable by, by the... Public, but I think because it was it had a very high profile, that story worldwide, the woman who was arrested for driving while well, female, and the king, it was just the reputation of the kingdom and it was out of Spring. So they just wanted me to get out. But there are protocols that you have to follow, which the tribe, the the, the chief of my tribe, go and talk to the king. And that what happened. Just following the the, the nomads or the desert uh, protocol, addressing the king, and thankfully I was I was released. They wanted me to stop campaigning or talking about it or giving any interviews. Um, I did, I was quiet, like I used anonymous accounts. I didn't use, because I didn't know it was going to be personalized. I hated when it became personalized. It's Manala Sharif movement. It's not Women to Drive movement. So I, I just went anonymous, but I had to give uh, an interview because I wanted to, my family and my, I worked in Aramco. Uh, I wanted to tell my story. So thankfully I gave an interview to one of the most prominent Arab a journalist um, in the middle uh, in the Middle East broadcasting channel, and that really helped the movement. But I went public, like on the international media, is when I was invited to speak in Oslo Freedom Forum in two thousand twelve. I won the award, the, the inaugural award of Václav Havel for Creative Dissent. I didn't even know what dissent mean or dissident. I had to go and I had to translate the word. I'm like, oh, okay shaq that's in Arabic, which is a terrible word to use. Um, that's when I had to resign from a 10-year job that I fought badly to get, working with all men uh, for 10 years. I lost my son custody uh, eventually, and I had to leave the country when I started speaking up, uh, especially on international um, conferences and writing for international media because society is the Saudi government really hated it, didn't want to have that to go out there.
1: And part of your release was you had to sign almost like a gagging order, as I understand it. And you were told by your employer, so if you go, so you were invited to Oslo to to tell your story, and if you were to go, that you had to resign.
0: Yes, I was pushed to resign, and I, I chose to resign and leave um, and speak. up. I think that's the moment I realized that I can't be any more working for an employer because you have to follow a lot of protocols and a lot of um, rules that I, would just stop me from speaking up, from writing, from campaigning. The most difficult part is losing my source of income. So our campaigners and activists, they really face so much pain, like... They're attacked, they're targeted, they are harassed. They put their life in danger. But at the same time, no one ever asked how they support themselves financially. No one ever asked that question. So it was very difficult for me, very difficult years. And I moved to Dubai and no one would hire me for my high profile. I started my own company with my husband, uh, but it was so difficult for us to get any contract while we were living in UAE for my high profile to the way that my ex-husband would ask me not to come to the meetings with his clients because once they know it's me they wouldn't give us the contract they wouldn't do work with us so no one talks about the price those activists pay when they speak up it is really high price
1: there was a there was a hashtag oslo traitor you know i think you at, when you gave the speech there was nearly 10,000 tweets using that hashtag now that's not something you can easily move away from that kind of profile. Once everybody goes home at the end of the day, um, you then need to you then need to live, move live on, and support your family. How how do you go about doing that? Not letting go of what you're passionate about, so not distancing yourself from what you did and why you did it, but at the same time being able to carve out a life for yourself that isn't absolutely defined by it. I had two choices:
0: give up, stay quiet. So I can make living, and I will regret that for the rest of my life. Or just continue. It will be painful. It will be there will be prices to pay, but at the end you win. And I think I chose the other one. It's just to give up a lot of things and just continue the fight. Um, a lot of women joined the movement when I was when I started it with bahia al mansour and which I lost contact with her after the after I was sent to jail, and I had to restart it again. And I asked for volunteers, so we had women joining, uh, and and fighting and and speaking up. But I think I, because I spoke English, so I was, and I was really lucky to be approached by people in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and then the Time Magazine when they put my name in the top one hundred most influential people in the world. That was huge for us. A Saudi women, there was, there was one of the victories uh, for us as women, because now at least you have the credibility to speak up, to um, talk about the injustices women face in my country. So I was very thankful. This is why I'm very passionate about journalism. I'm very passionate about freedom of press, because it does change the world. You have no clue the impact, an article in the CNN or the New York Times, that it does. It's it just starting a movement is something, but continuing it and then being supported by journalists, being supported by other activists and being supported by all these platforms, that what that what held us, the interest that stayed there for years in the media, that what really held us um, in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, to, to make it. and it's really the struggle wasn't about driving a car. The struggle is really to be in the driving seat of our own life and our own destiny. That was our struggle mm-hmm. in Saudi Arabia
1: and that's one of the reasons, you know, one of the many reasons why I really wanted to get you on the podcast because I feel like you know we watch movements start and they start with so much energy and so much passion and fierceness and and then Sometimes, often we see those movements peter away. And it's that point, right, where how do you keep it going? Once the fanfare is gone, once the, you know, potentially the majority of the media has gone home, once the novelty has worn off, how do you keep it going, both personally within yourself as a form of resilience, but also how do you hold it together? How do you hold the people who are still in this together in a way where you can keep, where you can keep moving? What did, you, what did you learn about the, the longevity of a movement in that time?
0: Uh, it was a grassroots, really. We were not, like, organized. People can come and leave. People volunteer. Um, it was more of con- knowing it. we had one goal. Uh, when I was in jail, I knew what I wanted to do. I would never stop until the first driver license is issued to a woman in Saudi Arabia. Simple. And they kept focus on that goal. A lot of people said you are such a um, uh, shallow person, superficial to focus on driving, where the whole world is moving to clean energy, electric car cars, and and like you did not understand, you don't see what I'm seeing. Writing a book, speaking about it, writing about it, that kept it going, and also choosing the the the, the right timing. So there are a lot of timing where when Imani Nafjan, the Saudi blogger, started the 26th of October movement, and I joined her, and it, it went viral that movement. So continuing it, you don't have to do it every single day, but you have those peaks where you can bring the media attention, where you can shock the system and 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 still uh, keep it alive and keep it like that very annoying thorn at, the, at their back until it was giving
1: did you did you feel alone were there any mentors or similar-minded people you were able to find along that path just to help you navigate it
0: uh, i don't think i felt sometimes i felt alone but no when i spoke in Oslo freedom forum The nice thing about it, it's uh, it's Davos for activists. You can go and watch some of their speeches. Such a beautiful, beautiful forum. And Thor Halverson, the president of Oslo Freedom Forum, he made sure that he flies back those activists who spoke in previous forums. He flies them back in Oslo every single year. So he created this community of amazing like-minded activists from all over the world. And you meet those people and you just feel... You fit in. There are misfits like you. There are outspoken like you. There are people being to jail for asking for basic rights. I'm very thankful for that community because you learn from them and you, you will always in a movement, you will always have people one year behind you, they're just starting, and one year ahead of you.
1: To come full circle, and there's plenty, there's other areas that I want to go into, but in 2018 in Saudi Arabia, women were given the right to drive. Where were you when you found that out? In Sydney, <laughs> were you?
0: I was in Sydney, but actually, they announced the decree came in September 2017, and I was flying that day to uh, Germany because my, my my book was published in German, and it was that day, September 26. I wake up to the news that the, the there was a royal decree. Uh, granting the woman the right to drive, and it will become an effect in June 2018. I was in Sydney and I couldn't believe it. I
1: couldn't believe it. How did you feel? I mean, in in that exact moment when you read the news, what rushed through you? Was it a sense of peace, of calm, of excitement, of anger at what you had been through to get there?
0: Oh, wow. I, I, I still couldn't believe it. I had to read. It was BBC alert on my screen. I had to read it multiple times. I couldn't... I still... I thought it was a prank, a prank. I thought it's just a joke because if it it seemed so impossible. I was so happy I published my book the same year the decree came. It was good. It was really good. Uh, it was good coincidence. It was 2017. The decree came and my book came out about uh, dating to drive. I, I can't even... Explain how happy, it's like the happiness when I had my first son, Abdullah, maybe that's how happy
1: I was. There was um, was obviously been massive personal consequences for you, particularly in regards to your family and your sons. Um, I've got a piece here that you wrote, which you know we spoke about before coming on air, which is just a beautiful piece for the New York Times. It says, I have two sons. They have never met face to face never tickled, giggled, wrestled on the floor, thrown a ball or played a prank or peekaboo. They have t-shirts that say big brother and little brother. They know each other's nicknames and that they have similar eyes. They know that they share the same mum. And I know that the only way I can wrap my arms around one is to leave the other. Why? Why? How did that situation come to be for you?
0: Oh, that's why I wrote an article. <laughs> it's, uh, it's complicated. I'd say once you speak up, your life is complicated and nothing will surprise you when you go through the life of people who are outspoken. First son, his dad wouldn't allow him to leave the country with me until he's 21. He can't get his passport until he's 21. And my second son from a Brazilian husband, it was never uh, acknowledged my marriage in my country. So they would not acknowledge Daniel as my son. So I have a son, I can't get him a visa. Um, now Saudi Arabia allow you to get tourist visa to go there, but I can't go um, on a self-imposed exile here, so I can't go to Saudi Arabia. Until my son leaves the country, Abdullah, that's when my two sons will meet. And Daniel is turning seven this year, and he never met his brother. And so how
1: many years until that can happen?
0: Abdullah can get his passport in five years from
1: now. Five years. How do you navigate that? And I'm reluctantly asking that question because I know that there's no answer, really. But how do you move through the reality of that and still keep moving with all the things that you're passionate about? And I know that there are many things that you're passionate about right now and that you're using your voice for. How do you hold both spaces?
0: For those who love with their eye, there's nothing called separation. Uh, there is, uh, when you love, there's nothing called separation. Separation is only for those who love with their eyes. For those who love with their heart and, and soul, there is never a separation. And I think I always say my kids are with me. I don't feel we're separated. They came out of me. We are, they're part of me. I'm part of them. We are never separated. Oh, Physically, yes, but we will definitely reunite one day. And again, hope, keeping the hope. And regardless of all the things I went through, my son in another situation would be turned against me. We still have beautiful relationship. me and him. We love each other dearly. He understands my choices and he respects them. We always talk with each other and I'm so lucky to have him as my son and I wrote the book for him and I keep a box of all these magazines that publish my, uh, whether an interview or an article, I just keep it there and it's for a booty. If anything happens to me before I meet him, this box will go to him and he will go through my life there. So no, there is never a separation
1: between us. I love, I'm so glad you mentioned the mm-hmm. booty box. I was going to ask you about it. I just think it's it's a beautiful thing that I'm even considering putting into play in my own life because for any child it's sometimes really hard to understand the choices of their parents and yours is a extreme extreme version of that but to keep a track and to the, the articles or the notes so that they can come back if you're you know hopefully you know I will be there for my children as they grow but I might not be for whatever reason. To have a record that comes from your your words, your life, as to what led you where you ended up going and the choices that you made, I just think it's a beautiful choice as a parent to make. Um, so yeah, it's something about your story that I'm definitely going to bring into my own life.
0: Oh, I have something else. I have two. Tell me. So I journal usually, and I bought two small journals, one for Abdullah and for Danny. And I just write for them. And when I see them next, I'll give it to them.
1: And do you write about your own life or do you write to them specifically?
0: To them, yeah, just messages to them. Like I wake up in the morning, I'm journaling, and I write a sentence for my son, Abdullah, and another one for Daniel. And his and they have separate journals.
1: I love that. One of the things that I feel doesn't get talked about enough in reference to your life and, you know, in us having had many conversations before this, you know, you were the the first woman in the whole country, in the whole of Saudi Arabia, to specialize in information security and the only female engineer for 10 years. I mean, to have your, your feet in those two worlds, in a world of information security, in tech, in the digital world, and in the world of Saudi Arabia and the traditions that, that come with that, how did you how did you navigate both those things, specifically within the workplace? Because I'm imagining that would have been beyond difficult.
0: I think the workplace is what prepared me for activism. I graduated computer science and women couldn't find jobs. Aramco started by Americans. It was the only company, the only company in Saudi Arabia that allowed women and men to work in the same workplace. Behind gated community and following very discriminative laws against me as a woman. So you, you end up in a, in, a, in a position where you are working using your degree. I was very lucky. A lot of my friends didn't use their degrees. But at the same time, you do the same job the men do. And this all these policies... Uh, discriminating, I guess. I didn't know even the word discrimination. I heard about it once when I was in one of the workshops, a Filipino guy, he said the word discrimination. And I said, what's discrimination? I didn't even know. Uh, The most difficult part working in Aramco is that you always felt ashamed for being a woman working with men. Doesn't matter your contribution, doesn't matter how intelligent or how hardworking, whatever things you do, you cannot celebrate them because you're working with men. So you, you you're shame in, 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 the, in the society because you are. Um, so we had around 30 engineers in the cybersecurity team. I was the first and only for 10 years. They, a lot of women joined later, um, women engineers, computers, um, I went to engineering school, computer science, um, but that was the most difficult thing: is dealing with the society out out there.
1: The reason, the reason I wanted to speak to that, to speak to your career and to speak how, to how specialized your skills are, is because, as you've mentioned, um, after after the movement and after living in a number of different places, you relocated here to Sydney, your chosen home of choice, same as mine. And what fascinated me. When we spoke um, after you'd been here for a few years, we caught up and you were talking about how shocked you were about um, women's rights within Australia and women's ability to be able to work to the capacity and with the support that is needed to be able to get a job done well and keep yourself healthy, your family healthy and your community healthy. And I just remember thinking when you were talking, like, oh, my God, am I... How, am I completely indoctrinated here? Or I would I would imagine, I would assume that having come from Saudi Arabia to a Western, a Western country, it would feel freeing to you to the extent where it would be a breath of fresh air. And you had the complete opposite reaction, which makes me feel like we obviously have, even in West the Western world, so much further to go with this conversation. Where are, you, is that, where are you at with that at the moment? Going around the world, meeting women from all other cultures, even
0: the democracies uh, where they think women got it, got it all figured out, it really shocks me to the core that the struggle is one. It's a men world. They just all agree that we are living in a world that was created by men for men. And we were asked to fit in, uh, play with their rules. And if we don't fit in, and if it's too difficult for us, then something is wrong with us. We need to fix ourselves to fit in and play with the game, with the rules. That what that was my uh, revelation working outside Saudi Arabia. At least in Saudi Arabia, you got the community as a woman. You got your family, you got your sisters and cousins, you got the extended family, you get a good system for you when you're going through maternity leave. Um, Living in Australia with the not clear family you, 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 because you, you don't let, you don't have tribes here, you don't have communities. So a woman is pretty much left with most of the work. So she's working full-time. She has to take care of the kids. Most of the domestic work is uh, women. Women go through so much domestic uh, uh, violence in Australia. One in four women is, is uh, faced domestic violence by her partner. One woman weekly dies, uh, uh, is killed by her partner in Australia, and that was deeply shocking to me and disturbing. Lack of community to women to support them, so she, they have to outsource everything. Still, they have they are expected to do most of the domestic work. They're caring for elderly uh, people. Live really long life here in Australia. We don't live that long, really. So we don't we don't have that uh, double uh, caring responsibility as women there. And we have a community that supports you. I was angry to see women stripped away from their community. And just outsourcing everything to daycares or babysitters. That was so shocking to me. I couldn't understand it. Um, Also, the the work life is so stressful here. The way that women are told something is wrong with you if you don't balance. And I quote unquote balance. And I'm like, this is bullshit. You're telling me I have to do all the work at home. I have to work full time. And you expect me to balance, like there's no life left for me anymore. Um, That was what's shocking to me. The other thing is working in Saudi Arabia for 10 years with men, utter respect, the way they talk to me, the way they uh, interacted with me, the way they they acknowledge my presence in the room, or when I would always be leading teams, uh, people older than me, um, they would listen. I would present to managers. I would talk to the minister of, uh, the the petroleum minister. Uh, I would talk to the CEO of the company. I would talk to all these executives, utter respect. And when you are in a meeting, people listen. You actually lead the meeting, you give presentation. I'm working here and men talk over you, disrespect you, interrupt you. Man's playing you. Um, I was like, seriously, I'm in Australia. I thought men would talk to women, professional men, talk to professional women, women in better ways. Some meetings, I remember I would walk out in tears because I'm like, I can't believe how men talk to women, especially when I'm talking about when you go to the executive level. The uh, the bullying. And, and I'm like, women shouldn't put up with
1: that. It makes me just, just sitting back with my eyes closed, just listening to you. It makes me realize just how, how complex this conversation is. As in, we assume, you know, that that happens over there. We have, you know, we're sorted here and you can be in a in a system that doesn't work for you that wasn't built for you that wasn't designed for you written for you where you were not considered at all and be so used to that system and not even notice and you know i think a quote that you have written before we live in a world today with rules that were written in our absence and i just i loved that quote because there's you know we've been talking today very specifically about women's rights and about gender imbalance when it comes to power and autonomy but, you know, there are a lot of people around the globe that feel just that way, that they were that they live in a world with rules that were written in their absence, either because of their gender, their race, their sexuality, generational. That the, Even for fathers who are now trying to parent with their wives or with their partners in a way that their fathers didn't or couldn't, and even they feel locked out of a system. What's What guidance... Would you give anybody that doesn't involve potentially having to do what you did, which was incredible, and and put your life on hold and, and chase after what you believed in? What can people do simply and powerfully to start chipping away at these structures?
0: We don't need to work five days. Really, we don't. It's a system that was built by Ford 100 years ago. And everyone bought into, into that. It takes away your life. Scandinavian countries now are looking at shorter weeks. Also, there is a lot of bullshit work that doesn't need to be happening. We can automate it, we can we, we can drop it all together. Capitalism really destroyed humanity because it's all about profit. It's profit-driven regardless of what why take in the way, resources, planet, animals. And our business is is flawed if it's just profit-driven, not purpose-driven, not bringing value to people. This is why social media now, um, I'm against social media, something that uh, helped me start a movement. I'm complaining of social media today because now the business model is all about profit. It's all about your attention. It's all about hacking the mind to spend most of the time online so that's how they get paid. But in what return? My own life my own happiness, my own mental health, my own having having time, uh, meaningful time, having precious time taken away from me, spending it with my family. The same goes to work. Our priorities in life should always be, number one, our health. Number one. And that means mental, spiritual, and physical health. Number two is the family and very close friends. Those are the second most important thing in our life. These two suffer, everything else. Careers should never take over that. We shouldn't really sell or, or change our priorities for a career, spending all the time there and killing ourselves and working over hours. And for what? For a salary at the end of the month? Saturdays doesn't make people happy. What makes us happy is the value we bring, the 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 the. The meaningful time that we spend, you can. It's very difficult to talk this way if you are living in poverty because people are just still in the survival mode. But it should be easy when you live in countries like Australia, where there is prosperity. Why people still kill themselves for for, for working stressful jobs, long hours, and and giving away a lot of the way, just being in the right the 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 right race. I think, I think it's up to us to just have that uh, take back our life, um, have more meaningful relationships, have, have more purpose driven and meaningful work that really makes us happy, contribute to the happiness of the world. Countries should not really measure their success by their GDP or how much profit they're making. It should be measured by with the impact, with the value, with the happiness of their and prosperity of their own people.
1: It's you know we keep coming back to this word community, to a sense of community, the power of the power of a community, and that again it's so fascinating to me that you come from a nation that we would look at um, from the west and and go you know those women they look they look. Ostracized, they look isolated, um, and yet you felt such a strong sense of of community there. And you've come over here, and that sense of community is very much missing.
0: Well, I think living in big cities is difficult, and coming from overseas also is difficult, especially at my age. I came here four years ago, so I was thirty-eight. So it's too late for me to start a community or belong to a community, especially if you're not religious. So I don't go to the mosque otherwise. But religions are really doing very well when it comes to building community and healthy communities because they have these regular meetings, they have, their ethics are really high. I'm not saying that the atheists or non-religious people don't have ethics, but they're really good in building communities and they understood what keeps people, uh, giving people meaningful uh, life.
1: My, my second to last question for you is another quote that I read of yours. And you had said that when your when your son asks you questions, about the world that's currently around him. You say, Abdullah, you're a very intelligent boy. I'll give you two answers, an answer that I believe in and an answer that will keep you away from trouble. Which, which do you hope that he takes?
0: We had that agreement, me and him. There are certain topics he can bring up in Saudi Arabia because it will cause him a lot of trouble, especially religion, politics, women's rights. He's a very smart boy. But what I believe in, I always tell him, That's my own belief, but I want you to keep questioning. Don't listen to other people's beliefs and think this is the right way. This is the right way for me. This is how I came up to my truth. You'll have different truths than me. But certain things, ethics, for example, those are non-questionable things. We can't question ethics. But there are certain things like, can women do this? Or can we do that? Those are the questions that are personal that I want him to find answers on his own. It's very difficult to raise a child in a society like Saudi Arabia because they don't have freedom of choice there. I wrote a piece uh, called Living Two Lives. And I wrote about the agony of having to live two personas. One, the society agrees and happy with, and one, that's me. And that's why I love living in Sydney because for the first time in my life, other than when I lived in the US, um, I'm myself. I'm free to be whoever I want, without anyone judgment, without anyone acceptance or, or rejection. I'm just me. Uh, in it we say, in tech, we say, what you see is what you get. This is me. What you see is what you get, and I love it. I, really, I think nothing is more liberating than letting people be who they are and accept them for who they are. I think that's the most liberating feeling that anyone could experience in their life.
1: To be accepted as who you are, where you are, exactly as you are in that moment. And also just to expand on that thought for a second, it just hit me. And also to be given full permission and full space to change, to adapt that, to learn, to fall over, to get back up, to be a different person now than you were 10 years ago.
0: Absolutely. we are. We're nothing but work in progress. We've done things. We thought it was the right, the right thing at that time. We could completely do it completely differently today. It's just that no regrets in the past and also no carrying shame of the mistakes we've done and forgiving and letting go. A lot of pain in people's lives, they keep it and really define them. They should not let it go. And just that pain and anger and frustration. Just let it go because it really, do you know good to carry it around? It's just what how would that could push you to do things better uh, rather than just feeling angry about it. I think that's, that's the lesson
1: I would teach my kids. That's a beautiful full circle moment actually, back to the first point that you made around post-traumatic growth as opposed to post-traumatic disorder. Um, final question, final question. If I could put you on the stage and you're no stranger to that situation, put you on the stage and in front of you put every single person that you would want to influence and give you a microphone and five minutes, what's the one thing that you would want them to know?
0: Let people be and let the truth be. I think that's the only thing I want them to be. And listen, listen to the average. I think we always think we know it all we don't know it all we really need to listen to each other we need to learn from each other and just feel that empathy to each other the world would be a better place if we listen yeah
1: Manal it's always such a pleasure and it's been a particular pleasure today thank you so much for coming on
0: thanks Julie thank you so much
1: so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up on notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the Influencer Code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.